Welcome to your shelf. Or mine. I'm Becky Standel, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. And I'm Austin Brigden, Administrative Assistant at the Longview Public Library. Welcome back to the podcast, Austin. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, today we are going to be having a conversation about 2020. We'll have a, a media review and... Um, this is just going to be a big therapy session it's, yeah, we're going on to have 2020. A, exactly. Um, and before we do that, let's um, give some update on some library news. All right. So, last Saturday, December 19th, you and I and Lisa got to hang out with Santa Claus at the library and library drive-thru mm-hmm. um, for four hours mm-hmm. while we helped him hand out a uh, books and candy canes to children coming through drive through with their families. Yeah, courtesy of the Longview Library Foundation. Yes, thanks to the Longview Library Foundation for providing those gifts uh, for the kids in our community. Many thanks to Santa Claus for showing up. I know it's been a tough year even for Santa. Um, and Santa, let me tell you, was in rare form. Yeah. Um, there was some comments on our Facebook page like, this is the best I've ever seen Santa. Um, he's so jolly, stuff like that. Mm-hmm, Lots of gratitude. Mm-hmm. Well received. Almost 300 kids came through. So, and it was really nice to see everybody. Yeah, and even the rain waited until it was over. Yeah. I think yeah. really tells you something about the magic of Christmas. So, we also have some library closures coming up. I wanted to tell people about the podcast will be coming out after Christmas. But we will be closing New Year's Day, January 1st, and also uh, Library Drive-Thru will be closed January 2nd, and uh, we will be closed for Martin Luther King Jr. Day, January 18th. Other than that, we'll be here for you. Uh, we've got winter reading coming up in January. This year, we're doing a winter reading for all ages. And it is just the month of January, January 1st through the 31st. And we're participating with Beansack's um, International Winter Reading Program. They're partnering this year with Simon & Schuster's Books Like Us program. So um, we've set a community goal for our library. We want us to collectively read 5,000 books during the month of January. And an individual goal for everybody is to read five books. Do you think we can do that? I think you could read 5,000 books in the month of January. <laughs> but, uh, yes, I think as, if, if, if Becky could do it, the Cole community could certainly do it. Yeah. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited. And the prizes, oh, the prizes are great. So uh, there's different levels of prizes. First of all, all you have to do is register on Beanstack um, and you know, track your reading there, longviewlibrary.beanstack.org. If you come through library drive-thru, we'll probably ask you if you've signed up for winter reading. And if you say yes, we'll give you a cool button that um, features the artwork 
for the program. Then if you finish, if you read five books, you'll get a finisher's prize. Um, mm-hmm. We are having mm-hmm. beanies made with the library that's logo on them. So you could win one of those. Or if you're a very small person and the beanie would be too big for you, um, or if you just don't want a beanie, you can get a small stuffed bear, and the bear will wear a beanie, but it doesn't have the library logo on it. Yeah, but Actually, you could be an adult and want the bear. If you want the bear. On your, on your dashboard or something, or your, you know, your yeah. car. Um, actually, some of the bears have earmuffs instead of beanies. They're very cute. Yeah. And? And? Grand if you, prize. If you finish, you'll be entered to win one of six grand prizes. And the grand prizes is a personally curated book box. So we'll give you a survey to fill out telling us about your reading preferences, your hobbies, the things that you like, and we'll gift you a box with um, a book or two that have been hand-selected for you, as well as some other thematically related goodies. And that's really fun. We did book box prizes for summer reading for kids and uh, a teenager, and they were really super fun to put together. Jacob and I put them together. People really enjoyed getting them. So I'm excited to do to do it again. And then if we do really well all together as a community, we have a chance to win a prize from Simon & Schuster, which would be either um, like a collection of books that they're featuring through their Books Like Us program or an author visit, virt- mm-hmm. virtual um, author visit from one of their featured authors. So we could yeah. win. You could win. It's going to be really fun. I think yeah. a really nice way to start the year with just some relaxing, some reading. That's all I'm going to do. Yeah, that'll be really exciting. What else have we got going on? Let's see. We just released an um, unboxing video of my library sampler. So that's up on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have a series of videos. So um, we did a little commercial for the library sampler. You should watch it. Um, The sampler is what we're doing if you miss browsing at the library or don't know Mm -hmm. what kind of thing to select Mm -hmm. for yourself. Fill out a form. We'll pick books or movies out for you. And then you can pick them up. So I filled out a form. I... Uh, had five coworkers each select a different book for me, and then um, I'm going to be reading them all next next week. And then on the podcast, I'll be talking to each person um, about the book they picked for me. I'll be choosing my favorite one. I'll be trying to guess who picked what. So that's the podcast that we're doing in January is we're going to be talking about those books. Yeah, that's going to be good. Yeah. And we'll have uh, story times resuming after... Martin Luther King holiday and um, an all ages craft available January 11th. And then you have some seed library stuff going on. Yeah, we're, we've been uh, busily preparing for the uh, 2021 season. Um, And to kick things off, we're going to be introducing our first garden kit, which is going to be a bulb forcing kit. For those of you who don't know, bulb forcing is when you, grow a bulb indoors during the winter months, either in dirt or, you know, water, and and, and can have um, spring flowers blooming inside. So we're going to have a little kit related to that. Um, There'll be a YouTube video, just like the craft videos, and then that will be available uh, to pick up in the drive-thru the first week of January. 
And then we're also, later in January, you'll likely be hearing from me about some potential uh, contactless volunteer opportunities for the Seed Library if you want to help make the 2021 season season happen. Stay tuned. Also, if you're interested in generally supporting the library, being a volunteer at the library, the Friends of the Library are having a Zoom meeting January 11th in the evening, 6.30. So they'll be talking about, we'll be giving them an update um, about the stuff that they've supported us with uh, for 2020. They haven't had a meeting, of course, since um, an in-person meeting since uh, February and all of the book sales you know, May and right. September were canceled. Um, so we'll be talking about ideas for fundraising for 2021 and different opportunities. Right. If you want to get involved, you can send me an email. Send those Zoom invite details. Yeah. And let me say a big thanks to the friends. They have been steadfast in their support through this whole crisis. Um, they do so much. They make so much possible. Mm-hmm. So big thank you to the friends. If, yeah. If you want to support the friends, they recently acquired the ability to receive donations online. So we'll provide links to that sort of stuff. Yeah. And they're the ones that um, make things like the bulb kits, the mm-hmm. bulb forcing kit and our craft kits possible. And the seed library in general. In- um, yeah. No, I mean, they, uh, mm-hmm. they, they support us in terms of all our supplies. Those of you who received seeds in the mail, uh, um, we're able to get those through the pandemic because of the support of the friends. We love you, friends. <laughs> we really do. They're called our friends for a reason. All right. All right, all right. Oh, so today that we're recording is um, December 23rd, 2020. What a year. Yeah. So um, I think uh, the biggest change for our listeners of the podcast of course, is that Elizabeth moved and left. And so mm-hmm. it's just been me and whoever wants to talk to me. <laughs> but it's it's been really fun. I was nervous. There's lots of reasons I was nervous when Elizabeth said she'd taken a different job. But <laughs> um, I'm really glad that I've been able to continue to do the podcast and that we have so many people on staff and in the community, it turns out, who are interested in um, coming on and talking with me about books and um, other things. So I'm excited about next year for the podcast. We've got some things planned. It's been an interesting change. It's going to be a fun season. I'll just say we've got a lot of exciting stuff coming your way, so keep listening. Austin, say something about 2020. (laughs) What is there to say? Pretty uneventful year. Um, No, I mean, it's, it's hard to even... You know, uh, the strangeness of of this whole year really messes with your sense of time in a lot of ways. It feels really long, but at the same time, it also feels maybe like I went into a coma in March and I just woke up. Um, Yeah, here's something that's kind of interesting for you and me, and I think at least one other person at the library in particular, is that we had to start new positions. Like I, um, about a year ago, I started as a services librarian, and then you'd started as administrative assistant right, in right. January. So it's suddenly been right. not a normal first year to have in a new in a new position. Yeah, yeah. That was just on top of everything else, yeah. No, it's been a very interesting year. I think 
this year in general has been difficult for so many people in so many different ways. But I do feel like here at the library, we've found ways to grow through it that are going to carry forward in ways that are going to benefit the community. So it's challenged us in ways that I think think will be good ultimately. So yeah, it's definitely made us to rethink. innovate. Yeah, innovate and like rethink the way that we do programming. I think a lot about how even just the change of doing like a asynchronous program, like doing a video and then a craft kit, like lets a lot more people participate. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And um, while we haven't obviously been able to have like a huge event like Little Monster Mash where we can get like 800 people into the library for like a dance party to be able to do like a, a craft or something where it's right. 50 kids can do it a week rather than, you know, maybe 12. Right. Right. It's right. a, a different reach. And we have been able to have a couple like the Christmas and the Halloween mm-hmm. events that were, were still felt like big, yes. big events. Especially um, Halloween, yeah. And have been tremendous fun. We've been able to get that rush. Uh, so, but yes, I think it's gotten us thinking in a lot of different ways. And I think that different kinds of thinking are going to carry forward um, in terms of, you know, ways we can better serve our community mm-hmm. and what our priorities are and and those sorts of things so um so you wanted to talk about the bgs this is in my notes <laughs> well yes i was gonna say we we jammed a little before this and and tried to come up with some things to talk about it's a little bit of a blur this last year i feel like i'm even less i can never remember anything but i feel even less able to do so now but uh but yes, okay, let's start with the freshest thing on my mind, which is <laughs> So I recently watched the um the Bee Gees documentary. Uh it's called How Do You Mend a Broken Heart? And uh it was it was really interesting. I mean I always like a music documentary and, and there's some ways in which this is this has a lot of the typical just following the you know, following the band. Um, stuff, but it ha- also has some other interesting things going on. And I've, I, you know, I've gone through periods where I listened to the Bee Gees before, um, but I don't know that I ever got so deep into it. <laughs> uh, so the release of this documentary sort of coincides with some other stuff Barry Gibbs got going on. He is working on a record where he's um, revisiting the Gibb Brothers catalog of songs with various um, Americana artists with the producer Dave Cobb. And so that's really exciting. And I think that and the documentary both highlight how sort of misunderstood they are as a group. Um, and it got me thinking about something that I think about in terms of books quite a bit, which is the sort of preconceptions we bring to different kinds of work. There'll be like sort of a cultural vibe around something. And I think that's definitely true of the Bee Gees, sort of, a, you know, a negative um, in a lot of cases. Um, five. I've certainly had that with writers, too, and I think it, it highlights the importance of sort of taking nothing for granted um, until you've actually listened or read or watched or whatever. Yeah, that makes but, me think uh, of um, kind of like YA as a genre, mm, I think, has gotten that. that genres yeah. get that I mean, a great deal. But certain writers, too, you know, I feel like... And especially, I think gen- there's there's a lot of gender stuff that can happen with gender stuff where you sort of have an idea. You know, I mean, I feel like before I read Joan Didion, who I love, I had an idea 
you know, just sort of some ethos, you know, that's in the air, and, and often it's wrong or reductive. Um, and you know, the fact that Barry Gibb is making that record right now for a lot of people, they're gonna that's like, whoa, that's out of left field, you know. But it's not like they made all kinds of different music and wrote for lots of different people. And so, anyway, in the documentary, they sort of they sort of get into that. And I think the other part of the documentary that's super, super interesting is um, they talk a lot about the disco backlash, um, which is really being reevaluated now for how... I mean, there was an aspect of oversaturation of the Bee Gees were everywhere, disco was everywhere. There was an um, aspect of co-opting by, the, by you know, the marketplace of, of the genre because people were making this music before anybody was calling it anything. But they talk a lot, too, about how race was playing into that. A lot of this was heavily influenced by the black community. Most of it was being made by the black community. A lot of it was, you know, coming out of gay clubs and um, different subcultures. And also just, you know, the role of homophobia and masculinity. Um, because not only in the case of the BJs, you know, there's a certain challenge to masculinity in the way they sound, in the way they dress in the way they're expressing themselves in the music, you know. And I think a lot of artists had to put up with a lot of, um, I mean, they were getting bomb threats and stuff. There was a quite violent reaction to a lot of that music. And uh, I think we look back now and it's not surprising. We can see where some of that anger was coming from um, and dismissiveness. Uh, So anyway, that's my rant about the Bee Gees. Yeah, so as a consequence of watching that documentary, you've also been listening to a lot of Bee Gees. I have been. You know, I have been. Yeah, Austin had this idea for us to do a, like a spoof? I don't know if that's the word. Yeah, I was just trying to think of how to rewrite um, a, a Bee Gees song from the dance period uh, as a as a, uh, as a library-centric thing. Like, you should be shelving. There's got to be something you could do with jive talking. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway, the that's the other thing sets this sets the Bee Gees apart and also sets the um, documentary apart is just how resilient they were as a band. Like this is a band that went through like several different periods of you know redefining themselves. You know they were they were they were extremely famous as a kind of British pop rock band like the Beatles. Um, meanwhile, you know the whole time they're also writing country songs and 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 blues and and maybe not blues maybe you know different different genres do you think um um, that this documentary spoke to you so much right now because you're thinking like a lot about resiliency (laughs) i don't i don't know i don't know that's a good point but but yeah so you know they went through different periods the dance period they were writing for other people in ways that i don't think people even realize you know, um, yeah. Barry Gibb wrote um, To Love Somebody, which was the you know big hit for Nina Simone, Islands in the Stream. He wrote the Grease song. Did, I didn't know that. Grease yeah. is the word, is the, you know. As a um, person who's done a lot of, like, garage karaoke, mm. I can tell you when the credits roll after your song's over, it's like 50% of the songs are, like, credited B. Gibbs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they they uh, they did a lot of different stuff, um, and I will I will wrap this up very quickly because we don't we don't have to talk about this documentary forever. But it does it just brought up a lot of stuff, which I think is a you know mark of a good documentary is it's it's it, it covered a lot of really interesting stuff, 
but it also sent me off in all these other directions in terms of thinking about influence and uh, and like I said, this notion of of carrying an open mind to things that the culture might dismiss or consider um, low or art low art, you know. And I also thought a lot, you know, it's really interesting. About, I thought a lot about age and music, you know, um, this week. This week or last week, Paul McCartney also released a, a record, his, I don't know, millionth record. And, um, and it, and it just, it, it did make me think too a lot. Barry Gibb is the last person from that whole Gibb family who's still around. And I was thinking a lot about how narratives, um, get defined, particularly around bands or even around movements in music or books or who, the person who like is lucky enough to live the longest often gets to enjoy a certain privilege of, uh, um, controlling the narrative, and and that's one thing. Early on, he's very open about the fact that I think it's one of the first things he says in the documentary is that like he doesn't know what his brothers would say. You know, they would probably say totally different things, have totally different memories, and that he wants. He's very he owns that really early, and everywhere he talks about how he doesn't particularly want that. You know, responsibility to, to just no. No, because I think he does feel a responsibility to sort of carry forward the work. I think he doesn't want to sort of um, control the narrative. He wants to be open about the fact that, like, don't take my word for it. Don't, you know, I'm just one person who, full of the, his own, you know, foibles and stuff. But uh, I think it's kind of remarkable. He's a bit of a chameleon. I think it's remarkable that he's doing work now because, you know, most of the the, the music he made was in genres that aren't that kind of aging, um, which is maybe why he finds such uh, warmth in, you know, the country, bluegrass, Americana world, because I think it's friendlier, too. It doesn't put so much esteem in youth, sometimes the opposite, in, in the same way that, like, blues, you know, I think, doesn't particularly esteem youth. <laughs> yeah. If you're a young blues artist, you're kind of an out, you know, it's kind of like um, somewhere I remember Nora Jones saying she couldn't wait for her voice to get, like, she, she, uh, more horse and stuff so that she could be more, you know. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. lots of interesting, if you want to, you know, whatever, think about interesting stuff, you should watch that documentary. <laughs> okay. I'll mark it. Well, I'll mark it on my, my app to watch. Okay. And now I let's really talk about something else. So, um, you had mentioned Paul McCartney's album, <laughs> And you'd said yeah. that you had read or heard an interview with him where he was talking about, you watched an interview with him where he was talking about how Taylor Swift bumped, I read up, it the, yeah. bumped up the release of um, her album so that she wouldn't, like, take the shine off of his. Yeah, yeah. Um, he seems quite fond of her. It's interesting because she did release um, Evermore as her new album, as her second surprise album of the year. Um, for her birthday, but released a few days before her birthday. And I, that was must to be why. Yeah. And I, you know, I didn't, I, I could be wrong or maybe I misinterpreted, but that's the, that's just I got. Yeah. I thought that was really something. But yeah, I definitely, so like Spotify, um, does this thing at the end of the year where they like tell you all the stuff that you listened to and like how many hours mm -hmm. and what was like the most played song and all of this nonsense. It's just like not ever a surprise to me. Because it's like, this year you listen to Taylor Swift and also the soundtrack to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And like, you know, some other stuff. You know, I like sure. a lot of like, you know, Stevie Wonder and stuff. But 
Um, yeah, it's been a really tailory sounding year for me. And last year was too, because she, she wasn't in the habit of releasing records very often because she would like, you know, write an album and then tour it for like two years and then write another album or she's right. got movies to make. She's got other stuff going on. Yeah. Um, but this year she wrote two so far. I, well, you know, there might be another one. Yeah. Like I think that's, out next month. that's, <laughs> I don't know that I've, you know, finished as many books as I might otherwise. Or, you know, but, but, but I've listened to a lot of music and found mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, respite in a lot of music. And I think, you know, this has been a terribly difficult year for those artists who rely on, on, on touring and for the venues that support them. Um, but I think it's also had the consequence of, of there's more recording. People are doing more records and stuff because that's the avenue, um, that they can do. But, but just in terms of, um, 2020 and, and then the things that sort of we, held on to or encountered through the year, um, like probably lots of you listening, you know, saw the sort of Facebook or Instagram or whatever live streams the artists were doing. And there were some times when I was feeling feeling pretty low when I would tune in to some artist, you know. There's a very direct address kind of thing going on with those live streams. They're very intimate and, and would feel better. I mean, it's always a, a bit of a, a solace for me all the time to think about no matter what's going on with me or what's going on there's always artists i love working on something Mm -hmm. there's good things coming yeah and i think i told you this that uh what one time it was like late and i was just like scrolling instagram or whatever and leon bridges was doing just like a like a live um and he's so he's in austin texas so there's like a bit of a time difference it was even later for him like three o'clock in the morning or something and he's just sitting there with his like guitar and a bottle of wine just like tinkering and like half playing songs and i just watched him for like a half an hour it was really nice and it wasn't you know like a show or whatever it was just like kind of having him in your living room for a little while no they don't feel like sh- i mean the one i watched it was pretty early on um it was charlie crockett um who's an americana artist a real charmer um and he was doing it you know outside in he was, he had moved to a ranch, you know, he had decided that six feet wasn't enough. He was going to keep 136 miles between him and the next person. And, uh, and, you know, he was playing songs, he was taking requests, he was looking at the comments and giving shout outs to people, you know, enjoying the different people saying where they were from in the country. And yeah, it was powerful. Uh, it was, it was powerful. Uh, yeah. Speaking of music. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. Go ahead. Well, what were you going to say, speaking of music? No, no, I was going to say, while I'm on the topic of music, one of the, you know, I listen to a podcast, um, probably less so this year, but um, one of the ones that stuck out to me was um, Dolly Parton's America, which was a podcast I, I really, really liked. Um, and it was from Jad Abumrad of Radio Lab, which initially struck me as a very unlikely Move, you know, to go from doing Radio Lab, the science program, to being like, I'm going to do a mini series on Dolly Parton, and it becomes clearer as the series goes on why he felt like doing that. So Speaking when did that podcast uh, come out? Uh, early in the year. Yeah, like in the spring. Yeah, um, Dolly's had like a big year. I haven't. Dolly that- has a big year every year. <laughs> but I feel like this year, you know. She gave all that money to the to the vaccine research. Absolutely. I think we have her to thank in like 
you know. Some measure for the Moderna um, vaccine. Yeah. Um, she's got, she's got Absolutely. a. And, and you, when you're talking about solace, when you're talking about solace, um, this is a, this is a person who, and the, 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 the podcast gets into this, who appeals to so many people on such a deep level. Just in her music, not to mention in her, you know, books for kids program or all the various, like, generous things that she does outside of just making music that people connect to. That's part of the occasion of the podcast is, is like, looking at this figure and being like, how does she appeal to so many different people? People on both sides of this, uh, um, of the um, political spectrum, um, you know, people just from every walk of American life um, seem to just have this high esteem in Dolly Parton. So, and she has a genuinely interesting life. So, um, yes, and she has um, a book out just recently I, about um, her songwriting. Song, some- song teller is that what it's called? Maybe. I believe so. She's done some interviews. She did one um, with RuPaul a couple of weeks ago that went pretty viral. Right. For like some, and I think like I was saying like she can say things. I think that's you know they're so sweet coming from her, but if someone uh. else said it, you'd be like you know, and that's how people read it. Where she told because um, they were doing like a uh, you know like an interview like this where they're on. Um, Zoom or Skype sure. or whatever. And, you know, she's dolled up because she does that every single day of her life. And uh, Rue was, you know, in regular dress down, you know. Um, and she was like, I mean, if I went out looking like you, I'd be so embarrassed. <laughs> she's funny. Don't you think she was making a joke? <laughs> I don't she's know. She's a funny lady. She's funny. She is. She's extremely charismatic. That comes through in the in the podcast too. And she would just like you know very casual conversations, and then she'll just like break into the song, um, you know, singing some old um, uh, murder ballad or like Silver Dagger. She's talking about you know the songs she heard growing up in Tennessee, and you're just blown back at the end of the day by the instrument she has, um, you know. And I mean, I was, she's always she's a fascinating figure. She's a fascinating figure. I remember watching a Charlie Rose interview with her years ago. Uh, made me think of it when you mentioned her being all dolled up. And something that talks about a lot is the politics image around her image. Whether you know whether you think it's feminist or non, you know, anti-feminist or what. And she talks about that, and it, 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 it's a very particular response to her upbringing, um, which was. Poor for one, th- I mean, genuinely, um, very difficult, and also, you know, some of the gender things she grew up around, where you know, women were, you know, she talks about like her mother, you know, shaming women, you know, for wearing makeup, you know, it's a very strict, and so, you know, there's more to it than I think some people might assume. Goes back to cultural, um, you know, sort of the vibe that's in the air. I think a lot of people still probably dismiss Dolly Parton as, um, out of some sense of her that's in the culture and take for granted that there's not more depth, which there is when you, when you really start getting into her music and getting into her life. So I still haven't watched your new Christmas movie. Me neither. Dolly Parton's Christmas in the square. 
right? And a new Christmas record, uh, yeah. Holly Dolly Christmas. Yes, and she wrote about, you know, she wrote, it's, she wrote music for the, the Netflix Christmas right. movie, so. The yeah. energy, the energy. Yeah. <laughs> She's on Barry Gibbs' new record. <laughs> yeah. Everywhere. One of the things in the, I think it was in that RuPaul interview, or something adjacent to that, where they're like, what's the song that you wish you'd written? <laughs> yeah. Barry Gibbs' song. Islands in the stream, yeah. So everything's connected, you know. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, I didn't really. I listen to podcasts, kind of like other podcasts. I listen to my podcast really regularly, um, but other ones <laughs> <laughs> more scattershot. I haven't listened to that Dolly Parton podcast, even though you've told me to several times. But I did listen to that cult one that you told me to listen to. Oh, cults, yes. Cults, another big thing of 2020, Feature of at least 2020. for me. I don't know. No, I um, think what was this, for everybody. What was yeah. the one I listened to? Heaven's Gate. Heaven's I, Gate. Um, yeah. And, and that then, was put together by the host of um, Snap Judgment. Some of you may know him from Snap Judgment. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderfully done. I'm going to get his name right here. And um, Glenn Washington. Glenn Washington of Snap Judgment. Yeah, and then Daniel had said that there was a, I think it was an HBO documentary about Heaven's Gate 2. So then also HBO documentaries, really big. Um, really big. Really big. Really big. <laughs> um, Which I think probably brings us to The Vow, don't you think? Yeah, that's exactly what it brings us to. The Vow. Um, wow, and what even, an experience. Yeah, and even though, like, this is uh, closer to now than, like, the Tiger King portion of 2020, which I didn't participate in. Did you? Not really, no. No. It does seem like quite a while ago since, like, I watched The Vow. Which is weird because... Because it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. In a normal year. Yeah, anyway. Um, well, everything moves so fast. Everything moves so fast. The culture moves so fast. So um, other things are having their moment now already. <laughs> But yeah, The Vows, that documentary on HBO right. about um, Nexium. The Nexium. Yeah, and cult. Cult. And following that uh, show being over, the leader of that cult was sentenced for his multiple crimes connected to that scam and got certainly the rest of his life in prison. It was... And then you know, some. Yeah. It, yeah. I should say, you know, the two that um, as someone who lives in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of there's a lot of intersections with the Pacific Northwest of, of a lot of these things. Um, mm -hmm. uh, listeners might remember. Well, Heaven's Gate had its intersections in Oregon. Um, listeners might remember Netflix's really successful um, Rajneeshi documentary, which is a very Pacific Northwest story. <laughs> we seem to have a lot of that going on. Yeah. What is yeah. There, um, I remember being the a rain. kid and having, maybe, it's just so dark all the time, um, being a kid and having, like, my dad's uncle make some comment about, like, whenever there was some weird story about a cult or, like, a serial killer or something that comes out on the news, you just, like, sit and wait for the, for the Washington-Oregon connection. Yeah, 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 you know, it's like, and, and that, that's pretty um, recent, too. I mean, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, I brought up 
with a Russian Ishis, and he was like, oh, yeah, I ate at their uh, vegetarian restaurant in Portland. It wasn't bad. Uh, I mean, you know, it's kind of the idea of eating at one of their restaurants makes people like a little uh, sense, you know, didn't want to eat at the salad bar in the Dells um, uh, for a while there. Um, But, yeah, yeah, the serial killer thing, too, that reminds me. There was a documentary I watched um, with my folks, you know, real family time, um, (laughs) and it was like – about it centered around Ted Ted Bundy's longtime girlfriend, um, and I think there's been a lot of exploitative, you know, it's always a very fraught thing in true crime. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, an, and an interest of mine, but I think in particular there's been some like tacky stuff done mm-hmm. around around the Ted Bundy case. But I thought this actually was was interesting because the focus was very much on on the women in his life, the the the, the girlfriend um, and the stepdaughter. And then the victims, you know, and so it was, but it was interesting from that perspective um, to look at that story. So, yeah, true crime and cults. Yeah. I wonder if there's something to, like, um, I was thinking, like, I I enjoy cult shows and cult stories. I think um, there's a certain part of me that feels, like, really um, redeemed by my, like, skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> By watching, like, I would, you know, like, never believe this and this oh. why. But I, I yeah. think maybe that there's a certain sense, like, that other people have of that, too. Like, it makes them feel like, you know, we're all alone yeah. here in isolation yeah. because of this pandemic, but at least we're not in a cult. Right. And the true crime thing, obviously, that's a, that's a, an interest that predates mm-hmm. the pandemic, but is always, I'm always thinking about that and and um what separates the good from the bad or the the exploitative from the um you know um yeah wor- you know i don't want to say we're we're the art you know or whatever um i read a book this year called son of a gun uh by justin saint germain gorgeous memoir and i won't give too much away about it i just happened upon it in the stacks which is where i've been living um for most of the last um eight months and uh, it's it's a son writing about his mother was killed, um, and you know you know who did it you know you know what I mean it's not so much you know the details um, more or less uh, the police report you know is right there in front of you at the beginning but 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 he goes into this journey to sort of explore his mother's life. Um, and go and talk to these various men, you know, she had been involved with. Um, she's, she, you know, had been married a couple of times. Um, and it was just really well done. And I think that's not one that's about a case, you know, like a big case. But um, I think the aims of the, the aims of the piece are what, you know, make it more. You know, it's not just, you know, sort of recounting ghastly things, you know. Uh, yeah, I also, like, um, the hosts of the uh, My Favorite Murder podcast, too, talk about, like, the interest in these stories is about, you know, their interest is about kind of yeah. survival. I could never listen to that show. <laughs> I couldn't. I'm sorry. Too chatty? I don't know. I may have just listened to an episode, you know. Maybe I didn't give it enough of a chance. My sister's a big fan. I thought it was a little too light mm-hmm. um, about about some of what was going on in people's lives, you know. And I and I just I just couldn't do it. But I think, but but a lot of people really like it. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I I think about like say podcasts, you know, yet serial, which I thought was really well done, and and you had, you know, different the Ballad of Billy Balls, which was just a wonderful wonderful podcast. 
text about a about a uh, police shooting in 1980s New York, and uh, you have these things where the where the the craft of it and the intent of it sort of raises it up, you know, and and then when those are successful, there's always a proliferation of these shows, you know, that might be taking on really interesting stories, but then I go listen to them and I just there just isn't that something, you know what I mean? They're just producing it because it's like what the market wants, you know, and so I think there's always a lot of and any you know sifting through when if you're somebody who in, who enjoys good true crime reporting or or whatever. Yeah, well, that's definitely not what uh, my favorite murder is. No, 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 no. But still, just personally, right. given my hot yeah. take, you like the reporting, um, but I do enjoy their chattiness about it, and I think they have they're interested in their own interest. In yeah, these sure. murder stories, um, and I, I think that is interesting too. That's like four layers of interesting. Sure. I don't just like the reporting. I mean, I like anyway. Yeah. Right. And you like this? Yeah, I understand it. The human stories. And the craft of it, and the search of it. A lot of times, there's a sort of you know search uh, for what can be put. There's a lot of meta stuff. You know what I mean? There's the thing. So you know narratives and there's mm-hmm. also you know what uh what can be put together from the fragments of an of, of an of an aftermath so becky's like let's move on no that's um what's next i don't know i think it's it's interesting to cause you, like when you're talking about the bgs you're talking about like you know like the idea of something that's popular being seen as like 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 lowbrow or, sure. Uh, and this idea of like genre being um, right, less, take, less, taken less, less seriously, um, right, and stuff like and that. And then, yeah. right. Um, but and we can all do that ourselves too. Um, I was thinking about how hard I worked this year to get you to read a comic book. Um, oh, that's where you're going with this. And uh, well, and then you, you know your comment about how like oh I don't like that kind of a podcast. <laughs> Like, well, no, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I listened to it. That's yeah. the difference, you know. Mm-hmm. I did listen to it. Maybe I could listen to it more. I just didn't like. You don't have, I mean, it's you, you, know, you don't have to listen to something that you don't like. No, no, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we shouldn't dismiss things that we haven't listened mm-hmm. to, which a lot of people or or read or whatever, because people certainly do that, you know. Like, oh, that, yeah, no, I wouldn't, you know. I, I, I wouldn't do that. I don't do that. I'm sure I do, but I uh, <laughs> I didn't mean it that way in that instance. And maybe I should give him another chance. And what you said, you know, makes me think, well, maybe I need to take another look. <laughs> but yes, uh, graphic novels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have been trying to get me to read graphic novels. Not that I have anything against them. Um, we won't get into some of our heated discussions over the past year on the nature of the graphic novel versus, you know, adaptations and the whole bit. But mm-hmm. um, adaptations, very know, contentious. We very talk contentious. About- um, but you gave me a number of graphic novels. Yeah, it's just like throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what'll stick. And uh, I intended to read them, and for some reason I just never, I just didn't. Um, and then I got my hands on... Uh, the Dark Dark Woods by Car- is that what it's called? No, it's called The Low Low Woods. The Low Low Woods by uh, Carmen Maria Machado, who I love. That's the that was the gateway. Okay. Is I love 
of Carmen Maria Machado. And it's, it's quite a story. It's quite a story. I'm sure they're going to adapt it to like HBO in like five minutes, but, uh. Yeah. Graphic novels do lend themselves to. Cause like, they're so visual. Yeah. Adaptations really well. Um, cause I think the, the format is really similar to television. Well, and this one is such an expansive story, really. Um, which is kind of amazing since it's, it's really not very long. And I read it, you know, in, I don't know, you know, an hour and a half or something. You know, I mean, it wasn't, it was, it was in a sitting. I read it and, um, you know, it's one of those things where the time kind of blows by while you're reading it. But it's really just like a lot of Carmen Maria Machado's work, I think, really astonishing in its charm and complexity and dread and, you know, humor and, you know, all of it. Um, She's just really got something going. Yeah. So Lola Woods, um, I would classify as horror. Right. Um, and I think like thematically really similar to her short stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for those who might not know her work, um, Elizabeth and I have talked quite a bit. Her body and other parties. Her, uh, her body and other parties. Um, she also has a memoir, um, that came out last year about, mm -hmm. about, um, about a lot of things, like most of her work, but it's, you know, sort of about abuse in, in, in queer relationships um, and abuse in relationships more broadly. Um, and that's called In the Dream House. In the Dream House, and that's done really interestingly, too. She draws a lot, I think, on the, the, the history of lore and, and, and fairy tales and legend, you know. Yeah, she does a lot of, like, body horror. And... Yeah. And she's a She's a really, I, I'm waiting for the uh, essay collection, because she's a wonderful essayist, too, and you can find a, a lot of her essays, and they're really good. So, um, now that you've read one graphic novel, I do have a list of other ones for you to read. <laughs> oh, no. Um, I tried to give you fights a long time ago. Right, um, I remember. And that's, oh, gosh, his last, his last name is Gil. Because um, you wanted me, because of my how much I love... Uh, KSA, uh, layman. Yeah, I thought that it was a good read alike. It's also, um, a memoir about, um, growing up black and poor and dealing with, um, violence and really, really well done. Uh, that was one I really liked this year. I really liked Kent State, which is, uh, Durf McDurf. He did My Friend Dahmer several years ago, um, Speaking of serial killers, <laughs> um, yeah. which has really, really stayed with me. And that's about, about Jeffrey Dahmer, who he was um, kind of friends with in high school. And then Kent State is, is about the Kent State shooting. And he does a really good job of his art style is um, really different. Like, I wouldn't call it beautiful. Um, mm. I think... Like, it's really expressive, but uh, I think people might initially look at it and, like, think that it's not for them. But um, but don't let it stop you. You should read it. It's really great. Um, he does such a good job of, like, drawing out the characters so that you really understand um, who they are and kind of building it. I think he does this in the My Friend Dahmer, and he does it in Kent State, too, like, building the sense of dread because you know where these stories are heading. Mm-hmm. 
he covers the whole the whole weekend at Kent State that led up to the shootings and the the protests and just the fact that there were you know hundreds of college students who weren't doing anything like they were going to class and um, all of these different like misunderstandings that went on and just like you know the whole tragedy of it and he. Mm-hmm focuses on the characters who end up being killed, the, the four students end up being killed, so that by the time the end of the book comes along, it's just deaths, is so devastating. That's maybe one of the my favorite books that I read this year, or like the most impactful books I read this year. I think you can read it too in like light of current events and have it feel really like resonant as well. I think it's interesting how those things come up. You know, a lot of the things we're talking about today Things come back. We're always looking back, you know, like Kent State. You know, obviously, it's been talked about over the years um, and written about over the years, but things will just sort of come back up the way, you know, people are talking about Heaven's Gate or, people, you know, the Bee Gees or whatever. You know, this this constant reevaluation um, and looking back in order to understand what's happening now, too. I think that's so in- so interesting. The world is so full of sort of stories and things to look at. I had a journalism professor who always talked about that. He was like, the world's so full of stories. Just go out and pick one up. You know, like, mm-hmm. they're every, they're lying around all over the place, you know. So. Do you have a book you read this year that stands out? Oh, gosh. I was thinking about that. Obviously, you know, Son of a Gun was one that I just stumbled upon. I love that almost more than when I've hotly anticipated a book or meant to read it is when I just, you know, I saw it on the shelving cart and was just like, huh. And it had blurbs from people I love, and I and I read it, and it was just one of those. I was thinking a lot as we prepared for this about finishing and not finishing books, which is which I I have a fraught relationship to, and try, I'm trying to be less fraught about it. I used to read a lot of short things, and now I I try to read a lot more long things and fail to finish them. I'm also picky, but I feel like I've probably finished less things this year. But the things that I've finished stand out because it was effortless. You know, I just I just when you, you just know when you start reading and. You just, yeah, it's not a question of frying. Um, and Son of a Gun was certainly, certainly that way. Um, the Night Watchman by Louise Erdrich, which I know you read as well, was like that. Just a pleasure. Just a, you know, on the, on the sentence level, on the larger story level. Such a gorgeous book. Mm-hmm. I mean, all her work is gorgeous, but. Yeah, she's one of my favorites. I loved that so much. And it's different. It's interesting, obviously. We can, you know, for those who don't know, that's that's her most recent novel, and it's sort of based um, on, or or you know, I think the jumping off point for starting that novel is the story of her grandfather, who was really involved in preventing termination of their tribe. But of course, like so many of her novels, it does so many things at once, and she's so bold in her choices, you know. Uh, yeah. Sometimes. I really like about her is how she tells like a whole community story. Yes. Well, she'll take these different characters and like interweave their different relationships and not even just their like current relationships, but like, you know, their family relationships often like go back generations. Right. Um, Yeah. The way she, she, she pulls things off that I think a lot of writers couldn't. I, you know, we read Jane Eyre earlier this year, and I, I've been thinking a lot about sort of the differences between sort of the, the classic novels, the Victorian novels, and, and modern novels. And sometimes there's there's a there's 
the whiff of the the sort of grand classic novel about some of her stuff, like she's so bold in the scope, you know, and she she the, you know she pulls in close, and then she's way out, and then she's you know speaking from the perspective of a dog, and then you know she's like in the past and the future, and that you know she's everywhere, and she does it in such a warm. Uh, inviting way. Yeah, uh, an inti- intimate way. Yeah, she's really something. You know, and I also read an old book of hers this year, The Blue Jays Dance, uh, a memoir of motherhood. Also gorgeous. Also, you know, um, we had a lot of cataloging discussions about that book. You and I talked a lot about cataloging because it's, it's, it's shelved, I think, in, in parenthood or, um, something like that. And it's interesting because like all of her work, it, it's about so many different things. Um, even though it's a sort of a journal of, uh, the first year after her child was born, her first child. Um, it makes me just want her to write more nonfiction because she's so good at it too, of course. Um, so I mean, those were, those were good. What else did I read? I read some Vivian Gornick. Yeah, you read another book about motherhood. Well, yes. Yes, daughterhood, I would almost say more. <laughs> Vivian Gornick is not a mother, and that is something I think she's explored, you know, a lot in her work. And, and she's been single, you know, and she, um, but yeah, yeah, so Vivian Gornick, um, had a new book out this year, and we have it. It's about rereading. Um, it's all about rereading. Um, she is, I think, in her early 80s, and she's rereading, especially, I think, now, She's at a point where she's rereading. Maybe she's not going, you know, she had a book about Egypt. She had a book about, you know, she's not doing as much of that kind of thing. Um, it's just a wonderful book on the act, um, which is an interesting thing. Um, I know people who don't reread anything. I know people who reread the same book every 10 years or every year. Um, but, but then, yes, I also read her most famous book, Fierce Attachments, um, which is a sort of memoir. I don't even know how to describe how it's done. It's sort of about her mother and her differences from her mother. Um, and it, and it ping pongs back and forth between memories from her childhood and then sort of her modern day relationship with her mother. Um, and these walks they take, um, and they're very different. And, uh, you know, she does a lot of stuff with class and gender and, um, generational stuff, you know, so. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful writer, and she's gonna, you know, I think underappreciated even now, and she's gonna have a new book out in the spring too. So, um, if you haven't read Vivian Gornick, you're in for a treat. What's her new book? Oh gosh. Uh oh. Oh, which one? The one about rereading, or the no. one that's gonna do out in the spring? The one that's out in the spring. I believe it's called The Long Look. Taking a long look. Essays on culture. Literature and Feminism in Our Time. That is the, the book, uh, and it is due out in March. Um, but she, you know, it's right on the heels of this book about rereading, which we have. It's available now. Um, and it's tremendous to see somebody reflect on different formative books at that point in her career. Um, so late in a sort of life that's just been all about, you know, so taken up with language to reflect on those things. It's really cool. Yeah, I'm interested in that book. I do have, I have books that I reread quite a bit. I've talked about that on the podcast before. When we talked about Jane Eyre, we talked, we mm. talked about that, about rereading. I'm um, about 
ready to reread East of Eden by John Steinbeck. I've been eyeing it for a while. Um, I would reread that with you. Uh, that was the, I think after I finished college. So I, you know, I, I studied English in college. I spent, and I finished in three years. So I crammed a lot of lit uh, classes in, you know, um, next to each other. So I have to be shaking like, it was dumb, like three or four literature classes and like, Maybe one of them would be in Spanish or one would be in like Middle English. So I didn't uh-huh. necessarily like finish, right? All of the reading I was supposed to do or enjoy it, um, the way right. that I would have liked to. So after I was finished with college, I think East of Eden was the first, uh, book I read where I could like just sit and just really take my time and enjoy it. And I just really remember that experience, too, of like, oh, like, I've been reading so much for the past several years. So, like, this is kind of what I missed about right. reading. It's a tremendous book. Mm-hmm. I mean, my memory, you know, it's I think I read it in eighth grade. Um, I I had this idea I was getting I needed to read more classics. I don't know. I was a weird kid. And I was um, that kind of thing also. I was like you know, I haven't heard the classics. And so I was like, um, I'll try a little Hemi didn't take. I'll try a little Faulkner. It didn't take. It really didn't take. And uh, then <laughs> I, uh, I, I, had, I, try, I had tried Grapes of Wrath, which I, I couldn't get into. And I later I've reread it and, and, and appreciated it a lot, although I don't think those later books of Steinbeck, even though the early ones, you know, they're technically just amazing. Those later ones are more generous, more humane, and used um, to be one of those books that I just, it made me want to write. So I, I've been thinking about rereading it, yeah. Sounds like a podcast. Yeah, I was like, well, we could pencil that in. <laughs> um, that would be fun. I'm going to write that down. East of Eden. I think that book was so astonishing to me. I won't spoil it because now we're going to talk about it for, you know, a podcast, but... I think it was one of the books that I just was really astonished at how somebody could make something like that, how somebody sat down and made it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really launched me on a lot of years of thinking about that. And uh, especially since I think it's such a grand book, it's such a big book, and it works on the grand level, but it is also drum tight on the sentence level. It, it is just, you know, gorgeous. Um, it's one of those books where I still can crack it open and just read a little paragraph and get excited about writing so anyway that's all i've got to say about that until the podcast until the podcast i also think um 2021 might be the year i read moby dick no promises um right right um, for all for you listeners at home there's a a quest underway to get um becky to read melville so i'm not involved yeah well i definitely um have read melville i haven't read moby dick but i've read you know like Bartleby the Scrivener, and, you know, as far as Moby Dick goes, I would just prefer not to, which is a Melville reference. I don't know. Anyways. I don't have the same classical education, um, <laughs> so I didn't get that. Um, I keep trying to read Jenny O'Dell's uh, How to Do Nothing, which is such yeah. a cool book. It's like a very self-help title, but it's mm-hmm. a much more, it's like essays, and it's really interesting, but I, I just am too busy. Too busy to read how to do nothing. Um, and that, therein lies the problem. Yeah. 
Yeah, you say self-help title in a kind of a dismissive way. Or... No, 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 no. No, I just mean I don't want people to mistake it. <sighs> it just sounds like it's a little deceiving about what kind of a book it is. Jenny O'Dell is an artist who has done a bunch of like, you know, artist residencies at like places like the San Francisco Dump and uh different places like that. She's just a really interesting artist who thinks a lot about like attention and space in our lives and stuff. I just, you know, not to not to cast dispersions on uh, self-help. I just it's I think she's playing off the idea of self-help because so much self-help is like the kind of optimization fodder that that um, she's kind of arguing against to a certain degree. Yeah. So um, in book page, we just got the new book page for January. And one of the like front articles is about like, you know, books you should read for 2020. And on that list was one book that is one of my most anticipated books of 2020. Not that I've spent a great deal of time looking over what things are coming out. Um, but there's a new book coming out in January called Laziness Does Not Exist by Devin mm-hmm. Price. And I listened to them on a podcast um, with Caroline Duner. And um, it made me really interested in this book. And I think it probably has um, some similarities with what um, Absolutely. About with nothing. And obviously there's a reason people are writing about those topics. Mm-hmm. And I think COVID has made it even more... These things, well, at least the Jenny O'Dell book predates COVID, but, but it, but I think it makes those topics, people are thinking about time and attention and, and, and connection and what their priorities are in a way that they might not have had the time or space to think about before COVID sort of disrupted everything. So. Right. And about, um, like productivity. Yes. And optimization and like what really matters. Um, right. I'm just feeling that. Yeah. Paige is really anti-optimization. She thinks you should just lay there and, and pet her. Yeah, she's like, your self-worth isn't tied to your ability to produce. It's, That's right. Yeah. That's, That's right. That was her contribution. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to think of um, books I other books I read this year, and I feel like I did, um, you know, I was on a reading committee, so I had like, certain commitments to read things. I also have a stack of unfinished books um, that I'd like to finish. But there were a lot of things where I felt like, um, like, do I not like this book or is it just 2020? I feel that. Yeah. I think a lot about that. Like, how much is my mood or my ex- my exhaustion level or whatever contributing to my take on this book? Yeah, because I think, like, there weren't a lot of books that I'm like, this is really good. Like, I I really like The Night Watchmen. Um, I really like Stamped, which is uh, Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Hendy wrote that. And I listened to that as an audio book, which I think has a lot to do with Mm. how I was able to enjoy it. And like I said, they're like Kent State. Um, There was a book by Rebecca Searle called In Five Years that I liked a lot. And it, like, kind of hit me in a good, like, spot where I needed the kind of emotional read that it is. Yeah. It's about, a, like, a woman who gets engaged, and the night of her engagement, 
like falls asleep and takes a little nap and then in has like a flash forward to five years in the future where she's like with him, you know, for like the length of her nap. So it's maybe like 45 minutes where she's with another man in a different apartment and, and then comes the next five years trying to, to not get to that place. Um, it's, Who wrote that? it's by Rebecca Searle. Oh. I think it's going to be, um, it, that, that the flash forward moment like means one thing. Anyways, I really liked it. It made me proud. Wow. That reminds me when you say audiobooks. Um, I did find that too. Um, the audiobook form was good. I, I, I don't think I would have read as many of these as I did if I, I hadn't used that. I, I had seen a documentary about Armistead Maupin. Um, oh, right. Yeah, you Some people those. might know. I didn't finish the series. Well, okay, this is how it began. I uh, I watched the the old 90s um, with Laura Linney uh, and Olympia Dukakis, the, the adaptation of Tales of the City. And I got interested. And then I watched this documentary about Armistead Maupin, who was another person I sort of always heard the name, and I had a certain idea of what kind of writing it was. I was so delighted with him, um, with those characters. It's extraordinary. You know, he's written all these books. Not all his books are about the same characters, but most of them are. So he's followed them through life. Um, and he started out writing it as a serial in the San Francisco Chronicle, which also fascinates me how you do that as a writer and, and have it all work when it all gets put together as a novel. He was, like, really ahead of his time, you know, um, pushing the limits of what, you know, uh, talking about gay culture and talking about uh, HIV AIDS, you know, in the pages of the San Francisco Chronicle. Anyway, and he has this gorgeous, warm, southern reading voice. Um, so I listened to him read his own um, books, and um, that was wonderful. That was wonderful. And, and, you know, a lot happens in them. Um, I mean, I mean, there's serious things happen in them, but they are... They're light without sacrificing depth, if that makes any sense. Like, they're, they're charmed and charming and a little enchanted with life and, and, uh, in a way that was really helpful in the early months of the pandemic when I was really listening to those. So, what are you reading now? Um, I'm like halfway through, um, the first volume of the graphic adaptation of Sapiens. Whoa. So this is interesting. Um, I haven't read the, you know, real version. Um, uh-huh. But it's by Yuval Noah Harari, and it's like a big um, volume one, The Birth of Humankind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> light reading. Yeah, it is actually pretty light. I was kind of surprised surprised by how, like, conversational it is. Um, I don't know... If the, um, you know, the original book is the same way, but it's, um, it's pretty interesting. I'm also reading this YA fantasy that I have to read for review called Cinderella is Dead. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's not my favorite. So it's, yeah, I made a commitment to read it, but. It's not super fun. I see. <laughs> I see. Yeah. So um, that's what I'm doing right now, and then um, I'm going to be starting on um, 
So I have to finish this book to review and write the review. And then um, I'm going to read my samplers. I'm going to start working on that. All right. Exciting. It won't be work. It will just be pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, maybe I will succeed in, in I'm reading a number of different things. Too many. Like my eyes are bigger than my stomach, so to speak. But uh, hopefully I'll finish How to Do Nothing at minimum. But I'll probably wound up about it. And also I'm, I'm looking at reading, uh, I'm reading John, O'Ha- John O'Hara, who people might know, um, Appointment in Samara. So old books. Um, I got on a bit of a classic kick from reading Jane Eyre. So Good. that's where, where I'm at. I um, guess we didn't talk about the fact that, that we've been watching classic movies. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of a classic kick. Um, it's it's interesting because like you and I have been watching a lot of classic movies, and then I was talking to some like librarian friends of mine um, from different places like all over the country, and they were also doing that. And I didn't. I think it's funny, like that kind of like this is what we feel like watching. They were talking about The Thin Man, which I've never seen. Right, right. right. Um, we were. Well, I, I said something to um, Sandra, mm-hmm. um, our um, outreach person. Those of you at home probably know. And uh, she wasn't surprised by that at all. She said, yeah, there's a big appetite for that. You know, it's – I don't know what kicked it off, but, mm-hmm. you know, she was thinking these are unstable, really chaotic times, and there's something about the classic movies. Yeah. I think one of the things about the classic movies – um, is that they're so, um, at least like we've been watching like Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy. Carrie Grant. So, yeah, they're like real dialogue heavy. Yes. Um, I think that. Um, and the atmospherics as well. Yeah, and just like kind of like the, it feels like real, I don't know how I'm trying to say, like personal, like relationship heavy where you like sit and like, see people having a conversation that's something that like we are not getting to do in real life right now very much um sure. i hadn't thought of that yeah and that's not to say that there weren't lots of bad movies i mean that's weird but like you no. know these are, the, these are the but but there is something about them the atmospherics of it and the particularly the ones you're talking about like well you were talking about sabrina mm-hmm. uh the original sabrina adam's rib um you know and the other uh hepburn tracy vehicles um that- uh, desk set, they they do they're and 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 you know they worked under a lot of limitations too. Um, they didn't have the special effects. Um, they had pretty severe codes on um, what they could. You know, they had to be very inventive and they had to really focus on the acting and, and the dialogue and the writing. And they had to rely. Um, so I, yeah, I agree. Um, and we, we we endeavored, I know, to watch some classic Christmas movies in anticipation of this episode. Um, yes. So we watched um, Bishop's Wife. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which I, I, I had never seen and was surprised to, like, I knew that The Preacher's Wife was based off of The preacher, the Bishop's Wife, but I didn't know that they were, like, it was, how much The Preacher's Wife was, like, a really straight remake mm-hmm. of of the older movie. Um, they're both excellent. Like, yeah. I don't know if you can find actors more charming than Cary Grant. Than <laughs> Washington. 
Yeah, well, you know, Cary Grant's charm. I mean, I mean, the the other performances in the movie are great too. I mean, the David Niven, Nivens, I think he's a, it is great as the rather uptight bishop. The, the professor's character is great um, and seems to be just sort of in the movie for pure delight. There's a lot of like things that are in those old movies. It doesn't really advance the plot that much, but it, but it's just purely delightful. But Cary Grant's charm really is a big part of that movie. <laughs> yeah. He just plays that character so charming. Um and it's so subtle. There's so much that's communicated in looks and little, you know, double meanings of and, and like you're saying, it's so Yeah, and you haven't seen The Preacher's Wife? I haven't. I haven't. Because like I've been thinking about about this since seeing The Bishop's Wife is like thinking how how they really they really nailed the casting on the remake. Like I said, like, if you're like, who can I find that's just as charming as, like, and, you know, handsome as Cary Grant, I don't, sure. you know. Sure, Put Denzel in there, and it's just like. Who could you, yeah. You couldn't, yeah, it's just, like, amazing how how their both movies are so good. I think. Uh, I'm just like, I, think- I don't know. There's I can't think of any other kind of time where they've remade a movie where it's like, <laughs> they're both so good, and the acting's yeah. great. And it ages really well, the story does, where it's like you don't really have to change anything about it to make it more relevant to, like, a different time period. No. I think think The Bishop's Wife is going to become one of my habitual Christmas time watches, Um, like It's a Wonderful Life already is. Um, Looking forward to watching that uh, tomorrow. And... uh, but we also watch Desk Set and a little bit less Christmas centric than right. like Bishop's Wife, but but delightful, delightful, and and it spoke it's, to us as library people. Yeah, yeah, it just kind of happens to take place at Christmas time rather than actually being like a Christmas movie. Um, but yeah, I don't know, like the whole idea of like so Desk Set is about a research department at a television studio that are concerned about being replaced by an electronic brain, which, you know, 50 years later is still relevant in our profession. Sure, sure. Um, and we should say which that. Which maybe shows how it's, you know, a little irre- irrelevant. I don't know. Right. show. Well, and I think that's the, what the movie demonstrates. Uh, yeah, what the movie demonstrates. I aspire to have the desk manner. Of, of these ladies in the movie. Um, I would love to be able to just quote a bunch of like Longfellow from memory in answer to a reference question. But uh, we should say that Catherine Hepburn plays the head of the reference department and Spencer Tracy plays um, the, uh, pro- you know, engineer? professor engineer character who has created this brain and is like, you know, snooping around trying to figure out how it's going to work in that department. The chemistry between those two is, you know, legendary, of course. Um, so we watched that. That was the first color movie that they made together. That's right. That's right. They only made two color movies together. We uh, watched White Christmas, which is um, a movie I regularly watch at Christmas time, which is like a Christmas classic. Watch some other Christmas movies right. that aren't, like... You know, in that classic genre, I watched while watch while while you were sleeping. Oh, and we also watched Christmas in Connecticut. Christmas in Connecticut, yeah. Which is another, I think, sort of less 
like every you know White Christmas is a pretty established traditional movie for people to watch. Mm-hmm. As is It's a Wonderful Life. I think The Bishop's Wife is not as much, and and I don't and I really think Christmas in Connecticut is not on as many people's radar. Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, that's one of those fun. Um, I like it when the old movies like obvious like Adam's Rib does this where they're like the whole movie plays on um, like gender stereotypes. So yeah, Christmas in Connecticut is like she. Um, that Barbara, uh, what's her name? Barbara Stanwyck. Stanwyck. Barbara Stanwyck's character writes for like a women's magazine about um, cooking and babies and living on a farm. Living on a farm, um, but of course she doesn't do any of those. <laughs> she things. doesn't live on a farm. She lives in an apartment. She's single. <laughs> she, um, she can't cook. Her uncle gives her all of the cooking information that she yeah. needs. Yeah, a write. standout performance by the uh, by the actor who played the uncle, by the way. And then someone writes to the publisher of the magazine, um, saying that this you know soldier really needs to learn about the joys of domesticity, so he'll marry his nurse. And uh, what better way to do that than to spend Christmas at the farm with this um, right with this character and. So they have to uh, scramble to uh, yeah to to make it make it work because uh, the publisher of the magazine also doesn't know that it's not a genuine situation. Right, he prides his uh, his magazines on their like authenticity. Yeah, yeah. So it's a real it's a real whimsical, delightful, antic movie. Yeah, it is. Uh, they play a lot uh, of humor on this idea that she doesn't know anything about babies or cooking or farms. Um, even though, like, she should, she must have had to pick up stuff to write about it. Right. Right, right. And also her uncle runs this restaurant. I don't know. There's a kind of, this is true in Adam's Rib and some of the other movies, a kind of those screwball comedies, the sort of mania that I don't know. Maybe it exists in comedies today, but there's a particular flavor of it. Um in those old movies. Very light-hearted, delight-driven, energetic comedy. Yeah. Um, I have watched um, some of the contemporary Christmas uh, films while I'm, like, puttering around my house. Um, like, on Netflix has a couple of new Christmas rom-coms, and I think I watched some Lifetime Christmas movie. It's definitely not the same. Some of them are... Are real bad. Like I watched this one. Um, <laughs> like sometimes they can be real bad in a way that's like enjoyable. Um, sure. So like I watched this one where these two sisters um, make Christmas wishes to like have a like a TV movie Christmas, and like the premise sounded like oh this is gonna be like making fun of itself, which is like I like that. Um, but it ended up being like it it didn't didn't do what I wanted it to do. Mm. So, yeah, maybe that uh, particular flavor of comedy was a, you know, a thing of its its moment, a thing of its time. Yeah, I think those things kind of come come in come in waves though, cuz I think like, you know, I sometimes you get like a screenwriter that comes along that can just like capture some of that magic. I was thinking like we'd watched um You've Got Mail. Right. That's true. Um so, you know, like Nora Ephron was really able to do that kind of uh, old-timey dialogue 
Um, Absolutely, yeah. You know, and of course you have um, actors who just exude charm, people like, you know, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, who I love. Um, yeah, we may have to uh, do a Nora Ephron-themed mm-hmm. episode. That would be a lot of fun. And you know, I think I saw um, Phoebe Ephron and Henry Ephron wrote this the screenplay for Dusk Set. And I was thinking the Ephrons wrote some screenplay for some old movie that we'd recently watched. And they're like this, you know. They're the Ephrons. Yes. Her parents, yeah. Right. That um, this whole family. Yeah, that's write, not a coincidence. <laughs> that write this lovely banter. And, um, yeah, that would be fun to do uh, just a, all of Oh, the, the homework would be so much, though. I mean, <laughs> think about it. There's the movies. There's also um, the HBO documentary about her life and her writing. So we better get started. Yeah. Maybe we could do it um, for some time, like, way in the future, so we can just really work on it. But not too yeah. far. Lots of what? time to procrastinate. Right. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, where you forget it or you just keep putting it off. It's like, not till May. So many right, things that we right. could talk about. I know. And we hope you'll join us. <laughs> Yeah, I think it would be fun to um this is my this is my hope and goal for the for the podcast for the next year is that there are some things that we plan far enough out in advance that if you wanted to watch with us or read along with us, you could do that. Um if you wanted to come on and talk to us about something, that could be cool or um you know, write in. Mhm. Yeah. Those are the poss- there's so many possibilities. And that's how, you know, that's how I feel about 2021, you know, there's, there's a lot of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I got my new planner, I got my planner for 2021 in like July, no, June. And I said, the dream of planning is still alive. <laughs> it took a hit. <laughs> it took a big hit. But yes, we continue to plan. We continue to read. Luckily, people continue to make great stuff. The library will continue. It'll bring it to you. What a nice way to end. Thank you. <laughs> um, so thanks for being on with me. A pleasure. <laughs> You've been listening to your show. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. Bye. Bye-bye. Studio time for Your Shelf or Mine is donated by KLOG, Cooking Country, and 101.5 The Wave. We at the Longview Public Library thank our local stations for their ongoing support. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McEldry from A Song for You. Find Megan on Facebook or Twitter at Meg McEldry or online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McEldry. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldry. Can you hear my dog? I can.